Welcome to The War Pod, a podcast based at Safer World, asking international experts about the risks of contemporary conflict and how to address them. I'm Abigail Watson, Conflict and Security Policy Coordinator at Safer World. And I'm Delina Goggio, Independent Analyst and PhD Candidate at Scuola Normale Superiore in Florence. In this episode, we combine two interviews. In the first, we speak to Samantha Kromfetz from the research company Rapid Context and discuss what the UK can learn from the Brereton Inquiry into abuses by Australian Special Forces in Afghanistan. In the second interview, we speak to Malt Raymond and Norma Rossi from the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst and discuss how the increased use of private military contractors has impacted society Through both interviews, we explore how the changing character of conflict and the use of, say, special forces or private military contractors challenges how we understand and, more importantly, how we oversee the use of force abroad. All guests agree on the need for more transparency and accountability so that we can check bad strategy and stop harm from states acting in our name. We hope you enjoy this episode. Today, we will be speaking to Samantha Kromfetz from the research company Rapid Context. We will discuss what the UK can learn from the inquiry into abuses by Australian special forces in Afghanistan. In November last year, it, the Brereton report was discussed by every major news outlet in Australia, the UK and elsewhere. But the investigation started a few years before that and you played a pivotal role in both it coming out and it being produced in the first place. It would be great to hear a bit about the Brereton report itself, how it got started and what your role in it was. So in 2015, I was engaged to do some work for the then Special Operations Commander, General Jeffrey Singleman. And what he wanted, there'd been a a small domestic sort of terrorist event in Sydney the previous year. And that had raised a whole lot of questions around what the Special Forces role was in a sort of domestic level, at a national level. And so really my project was to go and talk to a range of key stakeholders in the national security community and really ascertain what they thought the role or capability of Special Operations Command was and what their role was for the future. So it wasn't, it didn't begin as a deliberate um, project examining war crimes or potential war crimes. It was really something quite different. But in the process of interviewing a range of people from different agencies across our federal government. Uh, I suppose what emerged were people's, uh, a little bit of scepticism and cynicism about special forces, about the culture of special forces, not necessarily about how well they did their job or had performed, but just some question marks really about how much they were trusted. And so that sort of changed the scope of my project and I I sort of started a different line of inquiry and that was really to try to understand how Special Operations Command functioned. So I spoke to a whole lot of people internally and I was really trying to get at why there would be this perception that they couldn't necessarily be trusted outside their narrow remit. So again, in the the process of talking then to Special Forces soldiers, they were really open about the tensions within the command and, and the tensions in particular between two units, between the SAS and the commando regiment. And so people were really forthcoming in talking about these tensions and venting about their histories and how each, you know, were not working necessarily well together and how they were very competitive. So as people then opened up about 
that. Then other stories came out about what happened on operations. And through that process, really what were raised with me were allegations of war crimes. So conclusion of that project, or really toward the end of it as these things, as I started to see that this was changing into a sort of something quite different. Um, I went and saw the then Chief of Army, who's now the Chief of the Australian Defence Force, General Campbell, and also with General Singleman, and just spoke to them about what I had been hearing and that I was really concerned and that I felt that I needed to, you know, certainly report it. So they were incredibly open, you know, very trusting of me, and they believed me, they believed the accounts that I had been told. So I essentially wrote two separate reports, which are now publicly available. So there was the initial project that I was engaged to do about their sort of capability and future. And then there was really a much more detailed description of the accounts of criminal activity that I'd been told. So once I'd submitted that report, General Campbell acted on it straight away. It was escalated to our government and the decision was made that there needed to be a more sort of comprehensive inquiry to really test what I had said. So my report became the basis of that inquiry. So in terms of everything that I sort of spelled out, every sort of incident, they used that to begin their investigation and their questioning. That took four years for that inquiry to be completed, which was November last Last year, and really the majority, not all of what I'd talked about in my initial report was validated. Were officials aware of the definition? Were they aware that these were war crimes? Did they formulate the definition war crimes? Or is this something that you got at? People have talked about this sort of, you know, grey area and how would I know? I've never been to war. I'm not in the military. You know, the stories and, of course, the accounts that are very public now, like there was no grey amongst it. It seemed to me quite evident that these were criminal acts, that they were unlawful and that there'd been breaches of human rights. What do you think went wrong for these incidents to happen? I mean, I don't think there's an easy answer to that. I don't think there's there's a range of environmental factors, personal factors, you know, psychological ones. There, there are a whole range of things going on. But at, at the end of the day, I think one framework to try to understand it, I think, and Brereton goes into detail talking about it, is just how the Special Forces units operated on deployment, you know, very junior soldiers were very empowered and exceptional at concealing what they were doing. And so the governance structures really were completely fractured. So it wasn't just about what the um, alleged sort of perpetrators had done. It was also about the system around it and how it, it failed quite completely. It appears from, of course, what I've read around the report, that soldiers at all levels were honest and they were open with you. Why do you think this was the case and how important was it for understanding what went wrong? You know, I was in a quite a unique position in a way. I was, you know, I was sort of not in the military, so I was absolutely working outside of that sort of command and control hierarchy. I run my own business. I don't have anyone above me to kind of censor or, you know, edit what I write. I had, uh, people knew that I had a sort of direct line to the chief of army, that that was who I was directly reporting to. And so I think there was some faith that whatever I pulled together would actually be heard by the right people. And I mean, I'd been doing some work in the organisation for quite some time. So I think there was a sort of general level of trust. And I had a reputation for writing very candid reports about some misconduct and different things that the army were actually able to act on, you know, develop interventions around. So there's a combination of factors that meant that when I did actually uh, submit that report, it, it was listened to. It's really striking hearing about your experience 
coming from the UK where we've heard a lot of stories in the media around potential abuses by special forces. And then investigations have tended to be underfunded, politically constrained or severely limited in their ability to investigate. What do you think made senior military personnel react to the evidence of abuses by further investigating them and not attempting to shut down, which has been the case in other places? General Campbell's attitude at the time was he would say things to me like bad news doesn't get better with time that this isn't going to go away that it was better to shine a big light on what could possibly have occurred and that would be much better in the long run for the organization than to try to cover it up because you know I think ultimately these things do emerge at some point so yeah, he was, I mean, from the very beginning, he was taking it seriously and acting on it. Some may look at Australia and think that the Burnton Inquiry and all the media coverage which came with it, and they can be dissuaded from doing their own investigation. What would you say to these people? And how was this report useful? You know, inquiring, researching, investigating these kind of acts is, is so important. And even, I mean, for me, one of the hardest things was just trying to go back and, you know, as I was putting that report together to sort of find, is there a history of this being written about? Does it exist somewhere? So that then you could start to put together this pattern of behaviour. So even if people are doing work and investigations don't go far enough, just getting something out there on the record counts or other things that perhaps illustrate that not everything was okay. Uh, I think they're just really important because at the right time they'll be needed and used. Yeah, something that we hear a lot when we do advocacy work on, sorry about the term, uh, Western security interventions is that armed groups or terrorist groups do much worse things than us and that we should be focusing our efforts towards who commits the most violence, the big bulk of the violence. Aside from this, of course, being a matter of principle, do you think we should keep advocating for better behaviour of intervening security forces? And if so, why? There needs to be advocating for just professional ethical behaviour in general. You know, I don't know that you can have expectations of one without applying it to yourself. And, you know, you're right that this sort of discourse about whoever's we're fighting is worse and conducts themselves even worse than we possibly ever could. I'm not sure that I know that narrative is hung on to, but I suppose the question is, is our behaviour better? As I've been listening to you speak and as I've read the discussions around the Burton inquiry. I've thought of a million ways that we could change the UK system to address some of the issues with it in ways that the Brereton inquiry has. I'm interested in what you think the lessons from the Brereton inquiry are for Australia, but also for other countries grappling with potential abuses by their special forces. I mean, there's a number of lessons from the Brereton Inquiry. You know, one, of course, is that there's this great book by uh, sociologists, I think it's Stephen Mastrovic, um, and he talks about the Abu Ghraib trials and he talks about, he sort of extends that bad apples metaphor to talk about the poisoned orchard and the, the orchard keepers. And I think what Brereton did really well was look at those layers. So, yes, it was about the acts of individual soldiers, the unlawful killings and so on, but he also looked at the system in which they were 
operating and really the failures in that system of reporting and a whole range of things. So I think that lesson there to really look at the system in which the soldiers have been working and operating, that's really important. The other big lesson I think that's come out of the Brereton inquiry is just the psychological impact of the inquiry and what that's had on the special forces sort of community and also the broader military community. And that has been really now the response to it politically, at least here, is really about the effect on morale and on the sort of psychological welfare of soldiers with PTSD and otherwise. And and I think it is a really important point, although I constantly sort of am conflicted by thinking it distracts a little bit from the actual incidents that have alleged to have occurred. I'm currently working on external interventions in the Sahel region in West Africa, um, where local security forces have been found to commit abuses on civilians. And one thing we hear a lot is that this depends on the lack of professionalism of military forces there, and because they are not well trained, they are not well equipped. Your report of course, shows how even professional, well-equipped and well-trained forces can commit abuses. Is there any reaction to this? Is there anything that this makes you think about? It's a really valid point. They are are well-trained, well-resourced, well-fed, like all of those sort of excuses for, you know, why someone might be doing this primal behaviour, they just sort of all fly out the window. It just is becoming weaker and weaker, I think, that argument. Thank you very much, Sam. That was really interesting. And thank you everyone else for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. Today, we will speak to Malte Raymond and Norma Rossi from the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. We will discuss their chapter for the EIR book on remote warfare, which was entitled Outsourcing Death, Sacrifice and Remembrance, The Socio-Political Effects of Remote Warfare. Thank you very much to Norma and Malte for joining us today. Everyone on this call has one thing in common, which is that we all contributed a chapter to an EIR book called Remote Warfare, Interdisciplinary Perspectives. Given that I think this term remote warfare is going to be discussed a lot in today's discussion, and I want to talk about it liberally, can you start by giving us your definition of what you meant by remote warfare? Hi, uh, good morning, everyone. Thank you very very much uh, for the invitation first. Before I, I start, can I just say that whatever uh, Malte and I are about to say, um, these are only just our views, do not reflect in any shape or form the views of the British Army or the Ministry of Defence. So let's start with the first question, as you just said, how do we define, how do we understand remote warfare. To start, I think it's important to say that to understand and define remote warfare, we need to frame it into the broader issue of the changing character of warfare and how this has been the object of intense investigation in the last decade. Then if you focus on a material perspective to understand and to define uh, remote warfare, you can draw on the definition, for example, by Bagon and Bok, who claim that remote warfare is about a shift from a large-scale war, from the boots on the ground, towards the use of air forces, drones, PMCs and proxies to minimise the costs 
of the intervener, both in terms of blood and pressure. Now, as we will also discuss a bit later in our chapter, we wanted to focus on actually the normative assumption at play in remote warfare. So in that sense, we needed a slightly different definition. So to do this, we move away from an understanding of remote warfare as war everywhere or forever war to terms that have been quite used and have quite a lot of traction to analyze how this form of warfare has been extending indefinitely the space of the battlefield as well as the duration of war. And instead, we argue that these definitions of war everywhere and forever war obscure how remote warfare has the specific normative commitment of removing war from some privileged spaces and times to relocate it and its effects in other spaces and times. And to do that, to really define this remote warfare, we focus on actually the etymology of the term remote. And from Latin, remotus, um, we claim that remote does not only mean distant in space, as we usually think about remote warfare, but also distant in time. This latter aspect, removed distant in time, is especially interesting. This meaning of remote in time, we argued, is linked to the imaginaries of underdevelopment, civilizational standards, an idea of backwardness that are often associated with the places in which remote warfare takes place. To explain this concept, we draw on Barry Hindes and Christine Halliwell concept of temporalization of different, through which certain contemporaries and the spaces they inhabit are assigned to an anterior time. Subject inside these backward spaces, we said, are portrayed as morally bankrupt and fundamentally different in comparison to their contemporaries. For example, discourses on failing and failed state often have these ideas of temporalizations. So we understand remote warfare as entailing not only a physical distancing of war, but also encapsulating a specific normative commitment to temporalize the states and the societies in which remote intervention take place, framing them as morally backward and thus paving the ground for military intervention. That's our definition of remote warfare from a normative perspective. Thank you. That's really interesting. I think it's really interesting as well, because me and Delina have been talking about this a lot recently. This idea that remote warfare seems to have been defined by the West and it raises questions around who is it remote for. That touches on other chapters that talked about the impact of remote warfare in the places where the UK and others intervene. But this framing it in the normative aspect is something that I hadn't really thought about in my own research of remote warfare. Exactly. We've been discussing how to reconceptualize this definition for a number of years now. And so it's really interesting that you truly added something new to the debate, I think. In both our pieces for the book, Abby and I looked, just like very many scholars and experts in this space have, at the impact of remote warfare activities in the Middle East, in the Sahel, and also elsewhere. But your chapter looked at the socio-political effect of remote warfare for countries in the so-called global north that tend to engage in such practices. I think we would be interested to hear your thoughts on why there was, up until this point, a gap on the literature and why you chose to fill this gap specifically. I think what we do in our chapter, where we mainly focus on private military contract, we can see that 
literature on private military contractors and literature on remote warfare have a similar outlook in how the literature developed on both phenomena. Uh, like the literature on private military companies, literature on remote warfare has initially focused on the effects this mode of fighting has on the institutional structures of states in relation to, for example, questions of democratic oversight, accountability, and the lowering of the threshold for states to engage in warfight. And this kind of move was then followed by increased intention on the lift effects, both the use of contractors and other forms of remote warfare have on the societies in which remote warfare takes place. Regions like the Middle East, the Sahel, and others. And there's been brilliant work been done on this, especially by you, Erwin Delina, as well as uh, the Intimacies of Remote Warfare Project based at Utrecht University, headed by Yola Demers and Lauren Gold. What we, however, see in both literatures to be absent from our perspective is a more sustained engagement with what we might call the emotional aspects of remote warfare, especially the emotional foundations of political authority. And here we were influenced specifically by the recent so-called emotional turn in international relations theory. So one of the key aspects we want to focus on is the aspect of sacrifice that was overlooked within those dimensions. And I think it's something that is overlooked because we don't really pay much attention to that because it has kind of required an unquestioned status within our society. So we see Remembrance Day Sunday and other events that have acquired some form of yearly rituals. But these are very rarely uh, investigated at that because the focus is much more on accountability and other aspects of remote warfare. So we basically really wanted to bring this unthought assumption, let's say, to the fore and say, what does it do if we outsource the meaning of death and sacrifice? And we probably can touch on that a little bit more later. But kind of what we wanted to say is that what motivated us to move in this direction was um, Norma's and my shared research interests, specifically in violent non-state actors, and questions of sovereignty and, and political authority. So Norma was analyzing this issue specifically in relation to transnational organized crime. And I've been looking at it by investigating historical discourses on mercenaries. And when we kind of came across this expanding literature on remote warfare, we pulled together and draw on our kind of shared research interest in that direction. Thank you, Malte. We have indeed discussed the emotional aspect a lot within the armed drones literature, but only so far, I would say from the perspective of affected communities in places such as Yemen, for example, or for example, with regard to reactions of drones pilots. Yes, absolutely. I think there has been much more the focus on how it affects societies in which the kind of remote interventions take place. But from our perspective, we wanted to focus more on what does it do to our own societies um, that generally enact remote warfare. So we wanted to um, focus there on the emotions at play within those societies that are affected in that, uh, without at all undermining the importance of looking at those emotional effects in those societies in which it takes place. 
place, but rather call to attention that the effects are not just felt within the societies in which those interventions take place, but also in those societies that enact those interventions. One of the lines that I really like in your chapter is remote warfare does not leave societies from which it originates untouched. That sort of speaks to this thing that we've all been trying to do collectively in our own way, which is challenge some of the assumptions around how we perceive risk when it comes to remote warfare. So as Delene has already mentioned, we've looked at it from the perspective of what is the risk in the country that remote warfare is used in. But what I really liked about your work is to say we're not even understanding the risk to our own context because we think about it. Certainly we've seen in the UK that remote warfare has often been used to get around risks such as backlash in parliaments and publics to deploying forces abroad. But we haven't looked at the other unintentional consequences of our use of remote warfare. And so it'd be great if you could touch a bit more on what you found in the risk to the countries in which remote warfare originate? Yeah, I think this is a very interesting and profound and and a question that requires actually a lot of thinking about. I think to start exploring this point, I think that we need to refer to a broader existing body of critical security studies and critical military literature, which has been asking these kind of questions for a while now. So these literatures have been really instrumental in exposing the profound political, legal, societal effects that practices of security and war, including remote warfare, has on liberal democracies, such as, for example, you mentioned the lack of democratic accountability in the enactment of these wars, but also how this enactment of these wars are often, they also come together with an increasing use of emergency, exceptional legislation, which have been characterizing (laughs) the legislating um, activities in liberal democracy, at least since especially 9-11. But also we have seen work, for example, especially in critical terrorism studies that has looked at the deep social political effects of remote warfare in Western states by raising awareness of the increasing militarization of domestic security and the use of techniques that actually travel from counterinsurgency abroad to counterterrorism at home. So this idea that this different form of remote warfare do not stay in the place in which these are deployed, but actually travel back home quickly, especially the ways in which Muslim communities in Western societies have been increasingly the target of security practices, such as surveillance, stigmatization, and policing is definitely a case in point. So in that sense, from these multiple perspectives, it is very apparent that I think remote warfare's effects are anything but removed from Western societies, which is interesting because, as we were saying at the beginning, this is actually the normative commitment of remote warfare. So there is a tension, there is a contradiction there. So we wanted to contribute to this broader debate by looking at how remote warfare affects a key component of the construction of modern statehood. As Malte just said before, the citizenship sacrifice link by looking at practice of military outsourcing as a tool of remote warfare. Specifically, we show how the outsourcing of death to private proxies exposes the ways in which Western states are reconfigurating the very meaning of what it means to sacrifice for the collective identity of the nation. The nation has been historically claimed to express 
you know, the bond between the citizens, the citizens and the state. This kind of rearticulation, we say, has a profound implication, which is the key point of our contribution, that remote warfare by outsourcing death increasingly to the private sector has the potential to reconfigure sovereignty by relocating it away from the link between the nation and the state by creating instead a connection between the state and the market. Which is so clearly exemplified in the use of private military contractors. Yes, exactly. And I think an important point here is that often it has been said that the use of the drones and the use of the contractors have more or less the same effects. But actually, in this specific instance, they are very different because drones cannot die. Contractors die. And the question is, what does it mean, outsourcing death? Uh, The use of drones cancels, in a sense, death from the society from which these drones originate, obviously not from the society in which these drones strikes. But instead, the death of the contractor is a death that exists. So what happens to this death, I think, was a very important question to us. And what are the effects of this outsourcing of death? on our societies. Thank you, Norma. I was also particularly struck by this idea of awkwardness, which is a term that I had never seen used in this context, which you vividly exemplify in the case of ceremonies for the falling of private military contractors. They are celebrated for having died in the line of duty, but always with an asterisk. This tension between private and public and how the burden of responsibility is shifted from the state onto the market, I think The question for me here would be, do you believe that we will see more and more of this, which includes, of course, not just private military contractors, but also the use of armed drones and other remote warfare tactics in the decades, in the years to come? Are you worried that this is a trend that may eventually erode state authority in general? Do you find this worrisome? Absolutely. I think it's a trend that is here to stay. Like there are people tracing it back to different moments in time with post 9-11 world being probably one of the key moments. But literature, I think, is increasingly becoming a bit more cautious of thinking about in this term and sees it as a much longer trajectory going possibly back to the 1960s and 70s, especially kind of transitioning out of programs of conscription within states. So we kind of move anyway more to professional armed forces. Uh, and a possibly logical further step was there the, the outsourcing to uh, of um, military service to private individuals that are not directly attached to the state they serve. In the moment, and why it's here to stay, I believe, is that though we shift away from the kind of global counterinsurgency operations that characterize post-9-11 interventions towards what a lot of people see a renewed great power competition taking place. And I think in this new strategic setting, remote warfare will continue to play a very important part within this. We see this, for example, especially in relation to Russia's use of private contractors, for example, in Syria, the Central African Republic, Libya, and elsewhere. But we also see the increasing use of proxies and support for security force assistance programs. So we kind of move in the direction as part of great power competition, where the great powers do not want to directly compete with each other, but they actually use kind of uh, sub-threshold forms of warfare in order to not directly engage with each other. But they use all kinds of means that are just beyond, uh, below the threshold of actual engagement between those powers. And furthermore, I think 
We also see it, like we've all heard it in the news, that the U.S. and NATO forces are withdrawing from Afghanistan. And though this is kind of uh, an important step and kind of moving away from these large-scale interventions, what has not been really discussed and what is not very clear in the withdrawal is what does it mean for private contractors? Will they also be withdrawn? We are not really sure how large the numbers are, but at the moment we believe there are somewhere around 26,000 contractors deployed in Afghanistan. Will they also be removed? Most likely not. So I think there's going to be a sustained use of contractors and a sustained use of remote warfare just without the direct involvement of state actors anymore. So what I think, will it erode state authority, is a big question. I think there are big questions to be asked about questions of accountability and oversight, because we're not really sure who is in charge of those contractors. How are they being held accountable for their actions, especially also in relation to states actually staging military interventions, because they only need to be really accountable if they use their own forces. But if they utilize private actors, that is very much escaping any form of societal oversight. So what kind of in line with Norma was saying there before is I think we see a form of a reshaping of political authority, much more in line with neoliberal principles, which kind of don't focus very much on the societal level, but reshape political authority in terms of market ideologies. What is cheapest to exercise the service uh, and how can possibly strategic gains be most cheaply acquired via market logics and via actors that are kind of operating within that market. And I think that is one of the key dangers that I see, that I feel in terms of we're seeing more interventions, but without the direct public attention that such interventions should generate, because it's kind of directed into the market domain. And people say, okay, if people are happy to engage in warfighting activities for private gain, then uh, so be it. That is their own decision. But what is kind of eroded in that is the oversight that we want to have over what our states and societies are doing and um, how they engage in warfighting activities. On April 14th, 2021, the US announced withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan as of September of the same year. We will see how that plays out. I find your argument brilliant. I find it brilliant that you were both able to identify a nexus between market logics and conflict. And I think I would love to see more research on this in the future. Absolutely. I think it's something that needs to be further investigated. Um, there is uh, already uh, some really important work on exactly these dynamics and this intersection between the use of private contractors, especially to conduct these new forms of remote warfare, uh, on the one end, and on the other, the neoliberalization of the state. And what does this mean? And this has really important political implications because we are always used to think that, in a sense, an only strong state is a state which has a strong integration between the nation and as a sort of community, as a sort of collective identity and the state. But actually, I think these trends show that if you go towards a new liberalization of the states, which this use of remote warfare practices expose, you might have a strong state, but it's a strong state that supports and is supported by market mechanisms rather than mechanisms of collective identity. 
neither the two are intrinsically bad or intrinsically good, I guess, but it's important to be aware of this and have this conversation. And I think there's also a broader conversation that needs to be had, which you touched upon in that first answer as well. There's a tendency to treat the age that we live in as completely novel. And I think we're seeing that at times with the debate around great power competition and how the UK should respond. But as you've already laid out, a lot of these remote warfare techniques look likely to continue in our response to threats to states. And so I wonder, thinking about the lessons that you've drawn in the chapter and in your work on non-state groups more generally what do we do about it what do we do about the problems that you've laid out and how can we start to unpick and mitigate against some of the potential damages both internally and externally of the use of remote warfare there are a couple of things that we need to think about and the first one is that we need to have an open and strong debate about these issues. And, and in that sense, I'm really enjoying this podcast also because it actually gives the opportunity to continue these conversations. Because in that sense, a remote warfare cannot be a tool to keep increasingly hidden the costs and the implications of the so-called wars of choice in which different states in the global north are implicated. So in that sense, as yourself have advocated several times, I think allowing public scrutiny, especially in the form of parliamentary scrutiny, is really important. Another important aspect, I think, is to be aware that remote warfare does not technicalize war, but war still has profound political effects. Remote warfare is not surgical, it's not clean, and it has, it has been defined uh, in different settings, especially uh, those settings that are focused very much on the development of technology. But instead, it is important to recognize the effects of remote warfare in their pervasiveness and their violence, both from the receiving societies and from the societies from which actually these wars are initiated. And so the violence effect might be concealed, especially for the societies in the global north. But this does not mean that we can treat this form of warfare lightly. And this also concerns the cost that this implies. Again, this might be more hidden, but a closer scrutiny shows that these are not less important. I think that ultimately our discussion today and our chapter show that remote warfare bears effects on very crucial aspects of the type of societies and states in which we, as a political community, want to live in. And how do we want to define ourselves? How much space do we want to give to the market logics in our states and societies? How should we define our identities? And these are very important questions that we need to consider when thinking about remote warfare and the answer that we want to give to this very complex issue. Thank you. That's hugely helpful. Even if you've left me with more questions than answers, I still feel like that was an enlightening and incredibly fascinating discussion. So thank you very much. And thank you to everyone who listened. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. We will release every new episode on the 20th of every month. And you can listen to all previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts by searching for Warpod or following us at Twitter at war underscore pod. Thank you and see you next time.